Welcome to Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What, the podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today we are watching Nashville. Over the course of a few hectic days, numerous interrelated people prepare for a political convention. Yep. That's, that's the thing that occurred in this film. A highly regarded film that we watched. This coming after Kubrick feels very appropriate to me. Because... One of the things that I kept feeling and thinking when I watched Kubrick was like, this movie sucks. These movies are not good. But I understand this wrought so many more things. Yeah. So I understood that. And this movie really sucks. (laughs) But I'm also watching this and going, this is how I get everything from Christopher Guest. Yes. And I love the Christopher Guest stuff. It's geniusly done. But this movie is garbage. Okay. I'm not going to call this movie garbage. I'm not going to call it good, but it is better than what we watched with Barry Lyndon because there are some moments of very real interpersonal acting here. There's like one. No, I found several. There was like one for me. And of course, it came from like my number one lady who I fucking love, Lily Tomlin. (laughs) I mean, Grace and Frankie. Hello. Thank you for giving me another reason to talk about Grace and Frankie. But... I'm loath to give Barry Lyndon praise, but that movie had a point. It did. It had an actual point and it had a through line. I feel like this movie has a point. It does not. Oh, it does. Uh, It was not communicated properly. And the happenstance of getting all these people to this one place at this one time was so overwrought and absurd and not in an entertaining way. Oh, I would agree with that. So I sat through almost three hours of bullshit (laughs) and the only saving grace for me is that some of the songs were downright hilarious and i mean as a lover of one mr weird al yankovic i'm gonna i'm here for it i am not versed enough in the work of robert altman to be able to really classify how this movie sits within his stuff I, i could not tell you another Robert Altman film. <laughs> well, well, we'll get I'm, there when I'm we sure, talk about him. I'm sure you will. What is fascinating to me, and one of the things I want to interrogate along with us just talking about this movie, is why this movie was so lauded at the time. Mm-hmm. I would agree with you that without this movie, you don't get the setup of the comedic mockumentary. Like, you don't get a Spinal Tap. You don't get any of the Christopher Guest films. You don't get any of these newer types of mockumentaries to build off of that. It, it's not just that. You don't get the... I get the nugget of the idea. You've got all these people who have a dream. And, and that's the thing. I don't even know if that's the real nugget of the film. It's all these people who are wanting to get to perform at the Bicentennial. Well, at, at the... The Nashville Bicentennial celebration. And that's the thing. It's not the Bicentennial. It's this campaign rally that hastily gets put together. And it really, the whole point is all these people want to be stars. Okay. okay, And how are they going to get there? Okay. So that's what I get. And that I totally understand. That makes sense to me. And we've seen other films where you just have all these people just trying to make it. Just trying to make it. And and that's okay. And that can be entertaining. This film does not accomplish any of that. No. 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 But like I said, I was like, I want to know why this was so highly praised. Because let me tell you some of the praise this movie got. Oh, no. In its time, it was Siskel and Ebert's best film of 1975 and received incredibly high praise from all sorts of critics. 
The Boston Globe's Patrick McGilligan said it was, quote, perhaps the most talked about American movie since Citizen Kane. Pauline Kael said it was, quote, the funniest epic vision of America ever to reach the screen. Ebert said, quote, after I saw it, I felt more alive. I felt I understood more about people. I felt somehow wiser. It's that good a movie. Okay, so I 100% understand why. But I get it. I totally get it. Okay. This is not a pretentious film. No. And so this film is a film for middle America. Think, well. Okay. Okay. Think about this. So much of Hollywood, especially today, and like we 100% are part of the problem <laughs> with Hollywood audiences. <laughs> we like the auteurs. We like the the Hollywood stories. I 100% groan about this is a movie that's just wants to be about Hollywood. Fuck it. <laughs> anyway, like, yeah, Hollywood really likes movies about Hollywood and they just want, you know, new, innovative, crazy, like highfalutin bullshit. This movie has none of that. Nope. It's about people with a dream. These are not well off people. These are people that could be your next door neighbor. These are people that could be you. Anybody who just goes to the movie that week, they could see themselves on screen. That's why this movie is so lauded. This movie paints a picture of people in the middle of America, Nashville. Yeah. That is that. That's it. That's why. That's why this movie is so heralded, especially at that time. 100% get that. And that, ex that explains some other things in life to me. Okay. Yep. <laughs> yep. Nope. Get it. I get it. Doesn't make it a good movie, but I get it. That's where that's where I come to with this and, and where I start to go when I play it back in my head. I start to recognize, okay, no, that was actually an interesting moment. That was an interesting moment. It doesn't make the movie good. Fine. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be very clear about that. Okay. But I like the way you say that it is not pretentious in any way. Robert Altman is, for all intents and purposes, an auteur. Like, he is really wholly responsible for the crafting of his films. Okay. But he does it in this such anti-dictatorial way. His movies are incredibly democratic. and. In that sense, everybody is involved mm -hmm. in the structure and the making of the movie. Now, the problem is, is that this movie is so of its time and it's so fucking cynical that it is difficult to slog through. There's no editing to this film. None whatsoever. And again, there's no through line. And because there's no through line, there's no connective tissue that makes the happenstance of this and this feel good and organic because you get the sense from the beginning after about maybe 20 minutes because i went into this knowing really nothing about the film that okay of course they're all going to end up in the same place at the same time at the end kind of knew that like you we've watched movies long enough you know that's how it's gonna work out and that's fine but we're gonna go on this journey we're gonna meet funny people we're going to enjoy some stupid songs, some funny shit supposed to happen, and the way they all come together is supposed to be entertaining and enjoyable. None of that fucking happened. No. Like, you meet this person in this way. Okay, now y'all are teamed up together. You're going together. You two and you two, maybe this other third person, and then you get a hitchhiker, and then this other person just randomly shows up. Fine. It doesn't all have to, like, 
mathematically makes sense, but none of it makes sense. So fuck <laughs> this movie sucks. And and I will say there are movies that can do that and sure. you still enjoy it. Like it doesn't necessarily have to make sense at the end. Big Lebowski being a case in point. Sure. But you know what? It's compelling enough, it's interesting enough, and there's enough there that is well written. <laughs> That you don't care that this doesn't quite add up. Nah, I don't care. Also, drugs. Eh. (laughs) This, there's there's not enough drugs to explain it. There's just not. It is really trying to stay subtle and grounded to its detriment. Because this is a comedy. And I am fine with some of the darker dramatic moments that this movie takes. Because it, it makes it very interesting. And it makes it very different than anything we would have seen before. Well, and see... But they don't feel earned at all. No. Some of the darker moments only really happen with, like, one character. Only one character. And it's Lily Tomlin's character. The only one that I was like, she could have been your through line easily. If you tighten up this movie around just her character, because she's got depth and weight. We meet her, and she seems a little ridiculous. Then we see her home life. And she has a son who's deaf. And then we have a husband who clearly not paying too any attention to her at all. She's, she's obviously a very neglected wife. Yeah. She feel emotionally neglected. Yeah. Uh, Cause the second she gets that phone call, she is all about going to meet that dude. She's fine. When Tom's in town, she's going to meet up with Tom. She's going to meet up with Tom, which, you know, that's Caradine can't be that. <laughs> I ain't got no problem with that. Barbara Jean has a lot of potential with that too. And that character's written very tragically. But she's just chewing scenery. I know. Those scenes are bad. But then she has that scene with Tom where she's just so clearly affected by his singing where you're just like, this is the only scene. That was the only scene to me that had any emotional weight that I was just like, that's the one I knew from a minute ago. I was like, that's the song. That's the song of the whole fucking movie. Yeah. Even though some other songs are great. Uh, the first song in the movie is really fucking funny. To God. Me. That one's fucking funny. And then the other one that guy sings about, like, I can't leave my wife because of these damn kids. Three reasons why Three I can't reasons leave why I my can't wife. Leave. Unpack your things. That one was, that one cracked me up pretty well. <laughs> so, yeah, like, it's just. They did such a good job at drawing up characters and then gave them nothing to do. They didn't do anything with them. And that's why it's frustrating. The only thing I can reckon in my mind is that people had not seen this before mm-hmm. and were so engrossed by it and that moment and that it met something that the country was thinking about at sure. that time. Sure. And I can buy that. And again, it's middle America. There was nothing pretentious about it. You see all these famous people and you're like, oh, they're telling a story about me. Yeah. I get that. Like, that's why t- certain TV shows that aren't super critically acclaimed, but people love them. You know, shows like The Ranch on Netflix. People don't talk about The Ranch, but you know what? Fabulous ratings because people are watching it because it speaks to a part of America that doesn't talk a whole lot, doesn't talk super loud. And yeah, I know it's the middle. It's middle America. It's not you know the coastal elites, and I totally get that. And Even yeah, I, it's 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 that part of it's that part of the audience that that hollywood doesn't make media specifically for so what i what i would push back on that is that it is a very specific vision of middle america true and it is a specific vision of the hollywood of middle america sure which is nashville and part of why this movie doesn't work for me too Mm -hmm. and it's aged out is that this whole concept of nashville and everything is not what it is anymore 
It's gotten completely and utterly Hollywoodified. Like the Opry system is not nearly as influential Opry. as it was in 1975. Well, the Opry's a joke now. Yeah. Like it, anyone basically can be there. I mean, uh, yeah, like let's just put it this way. Nashville is country Hollywood. Yeah. And it, it always has been. It always has been, but it's basically all the people from Hollywood who wanted small town living moved to Nashville. Yes. Nicole Kidman and Reese Witherspoon live there. Yeah. Well, <laughs> next door to each other. I mean, to be fair, Nicole's married to a country guy, so. But they live there. <laughs> I don't get it. I next get it. door to each other. No, fact. and and so it, it has completely changed. It's a completely different thing. So this is a movie that was incredibly good at the time totally it's a time it's got it's a little time capsule but now it's boring as it, fuck it doesn't have it, do, it doesn't have any relevance to today and that's where that's where when i go back i go okay there's some good here and i get it it's just not working for me anymore. okay but so like when they do the trice and the film for the tricentennial is it just gonna be austin <laughs> probably i love the fact that we do that and it's like the bicentennial isn't even really what's going on here they're here to ostensibly get a bunch of people together for a political rally that nobody actually wants to perform at. Which I totally get. For a third party candidate. <laughs> also totally get. Yeah, so it will be in Austin. Yes. If you want, you know it will be. <sighs> it will be Austin. Man, <laughs> this movie. The budget was $2.2 million. Okay. That reads, it's it's grimy, but it's kind of meant to be grimy. And it's all done on the fly. Yeah, it it's that's just location fees and cars and shit. And it made $10 million. It's really not that bad. No. I mean, five times its cost. It did very well. By all measures, this is an art house film. <laughs> it made its money back and it got Oscar nominations. So that's that's a slam dunk. Yep. I'm not, I'm not shitting on it. So after I gave all that praise, there were a, a few critics that came after oh. it, including Greil Marcus, not just a critic, but also like... A Bob Dylan whisperer, like he's tour he's gone around with the dead and Bob Dylan and written sure. books about them. Okay. A few of these critics wrote reviews where they called out the movie for being superficial and overrated. Mm -hmm. They talked about how visually it wasn't that good looking, which it's not meant to be. It's yeah, it's not a good looking film, but yeah, it's not meant to be a pretty film. And they called out just how utterly cynical, sexist, and just pessimistic the movie is. Because it is. It's relentlessly cynical. Which is very fitting for 1975. But you watch this movie now and you're like, nothing is this fucking bleak in the world. Nothing is this cut and dry bleak. Uh, I mean, 2020 would disagree. <laughs> <laughs> um... But it's also not, it's bleak in a very life is humdrum and will never be shocking in any way. 2020, we're like, oh no, it's incredibly fucking shocking all the time. Yeah. <sighs> It just doesn't read anymore as real. Maybe, Maybe it read real at some point, but it doesn't read as realistic. Mm. Maybe I'm just not that pessimistic. <laughs> I mean, good for you, man. Here's why I don't take it as being overly pessimistic. It's just because it's talking so much about the music industry and it's just like, that's just hard. Yeah, that's fair. So uh, people being, you know, you're not going to get in, like you're not good enough. It's just, I, I don't take that as... Being pessimistic, it's just like, this is a business, yo. You will get chewed up and spat out. Yeah. Like that girl who can't sing. And like every time she goes to perform and they're just like, oh man, you're horrible. But you're pretty. You're that's pretty. why people want you in this room. Uh, uh, that's the only reason you're getting in the room is because you're pretty. Mm -hmm. Like that's all you got right now, girl. Nashville, for their part, hated this movie. Of course they did. A lot of musicians thought it was completely mean spirited. 
poked way too hard of fun at them. Fair. It's had more appreciation in recent years, especially in some of the sort of alt country circles. They really dig this movie. Like to, there's a tribute mm-hmm. album with a bunch of people. Mm-hmm. However, they were using all Nashville musicians. All the people that are backing the actors uh-huh. are real musicians, real people around. The violinist that they call Vassar, he's a session fiddler on a bunch of stuff. Okay. Like, that's cool. You know, a bunch of these people were Nashville stayaways. And Altman, for his part, thought it was probably a little more about him using the actors writing the songs instead of oh. using Nashville artist material. <laughs> I, I, I could see where that would be. A, a little bone of contention? Yeah. Like why didn't you cast some of us? Well, yeah, for some of the, or or at least, why couldn't you, you pay, you're paying us to play the music, but you're not paying us to write music for you. Because here's the thing, your actors can do the funny words, but we can make it sound really good. Yeah. And I, I think that's a fair point. Because it's like, okay, your actor knows your character, and this is the vibe they're going for. We can turn that into a banger. Like, we can turn that into something amazing, give it some weight, maybe turn around their words and still give that funny vibe or the ridiculous to it that you want, but give it that, hey, they're actually good at this. Or, hey, you need somebody who has an amazing voice, but they're horrible at this. We can do that, too. But right or wrong, that is not how Robert Altman does things. He is verite <laughs> come come hell or high water. I mean, I- if if that is where the animosity is from, I think that's a fair yeah. place. It's something interesting about this director. And if we ever watch other movies of his, it's very interesting about him that he sticks to his guns regardless. Hmm. Okay. He, yeah. he will not do things a different way, <laughs> which sometimes it might work and sometimes it might flop on its face. In this case, both apparently. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about quickly our writing. Okay. The credited writer for this film is Joan Tewksbury. Before this, she wrote Altman's film Thieves Like Us. And after this, she wrote the movie Eyes of Laura Mars and a bunch of television movies. Okay. She's also worked as a script supervisor. I don't know if she worked with Altman a lot, but she is also now a teacher and an advisor on films. So she comes in as a consultant and also teaches a lot of film studies for people. Now, that being said, Robert Altman has never had a set script in any of his films. Okay. This is part of the process. Now, a lot of people have twisted this to say his movies are completely improvised. Okay. Tewksbury pushed back on that and said, the plot is completely detailed. There sure. is a full written script. Sure. The dialogue is what was improvised sure. on that's set. Fair. It would have to be. Even, even in a Christopher Guest film, Yeah, that's you can't... Yeah, they completely laid out all of the different beats and plot points they wanted to hit. Sure. And then, and he's done this on nearly every movie. It's up to the actors then to work together to through make rehearsals it, to make it on film to get the dialogue and make it work in between. And then you get all these little asides that uh-huh. we see filmed that he can edit into the movie. And that is how he does his movies. It's how he's always done his movies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the thing. I have no problem with improvised movies. I mean, again, we've seen Christopher Guest. His film's great. Your outline is clearly where the problem is. If your outline, and also we've talked about it with like our action series. We talked about Mission Impossible. They would start filming movies without a completed script. And if you have your major story beats laid out very, very well, you can get some of that. But if you don't, if it's too ambiguous, 
that gets messy. And then when you're trying to rewrite things on the fly, it gets fucked up so quick. It falls apart. Well, and to me, I don't even think it's that. Altman is not the kind of guy who's like, okay, we got to switch this scene on the fly now. Mm -hmm. He, He is a guy who's like, put it in a couple of takes, let's move on. Like, he's like, we do it and we're done. (laughs) And so to me, what it is, is an issue of scale. He's trying to tell way too big a story. In fact, the rough cut of this movie Uh was so long, they honestly considered releasing it as two separate simultaneous films. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Yeah. Because this movie sucks. Its problem is that it is trying to tell like 20 character stories in one. And none of them are that interesting, save for three. There are movies that have done epic scales. We may watch one of them later. But you cannot effectively, with the amount of time we've been given here, tell 20 different character stories. You can't. Not the way you're trying to. No. Okay. Because Television, you could do this. Television, yeah. A, t- a 20 episode, 30 minutes per episode comedy limited series where you bounce through these characters sure, and tie them all together. But no, but like, okay, so let's talk about, so the Jeff Gold- Goldblum character. Is ostensibly the through line to this movie. Well, him and Albuquerque. Yeah. They're the through lines, which sucks because they're horrible. But here's the thing. <laughs> I know you told me so much about their characters by telling me so little. Yeah. Because their characters exist in a very abstract way. And that's okay. Yeah. But you have so many characters that you treated them that way. And yet you gave them these full scenes and songs. And I didn't need it or want it. And it's just like, this is a waste of my fucking time. And that's the problem. You 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 can't do that. No. Like You could have picked five characters and treated them like Albuquerque and the Jeff Goldblum characters, whose character I have no idea what this name is. Motorcycle dude. Yeah. And been like, they're going to keep showing up. And every time they show up, we're going to see them do something weird or different. And we're just going to keep seeing them in some weird way. And that would have been fine. Albuquerque pays off at the end. Finally. Albuquerque pays off again. But also, they they ruined the payoff completely. Of course. They totally fucked that up. It should have been a much bigger moment. And they totally fucked it up. Because you can't even tell that it's actually her singing with the way they filmed that. Of course. So... Your your big plan, which I can tell, your big plan was that, oh, she's horrible. Oh, my God, she can sing because I can tell that bitch can sing. Of course. You can't even tell that she's the one singing with the way you're filming it. Fuck you. Like, <laughs> like you, you, ruined the, you ruined your bit. Because you had to show off the Parthenon. No, you're just stupid. <laughs> like, you're a shitty filmmaker is basically what I'm, what I'm figuring out. Um... Yeah, I'm, just, I'm mad. I'm mad at this film for, for like having a good idea and just doing it really badly. Again, and what's what's bonkers to me is how lauded and praised it is by people of very reputable stature. I, I you know, again, it, it's one of those you did it first things. And then like you talk about Kubrick. This is the first time I ever saw this. Oh, my God. It's the same. Yeah, it's, yeah. The, it's the same bullshit. OK, it's like the, you know, that first time we saw the Matrix in the theater and it yeah. was just like. Like, I, I mean, I, I genuinely like that. I think that was the first time my mind was thoroughly blown in the theater. Yeah. But see, here's my problem is that this movie, all these people go, oh, it's a story about real America. And I was like, this is not fucking real America. <laughs> I'm from the goddamn South. This is not what the South is like, people. Okay. Well, we're from a different, we're from a very weird place in the South. I'm just saying, like, this is not indicative of any reality. 
And I think some of it is bi-coastal rose-color glasses getting put on this fucking movie. Oh, it's fine. I just, it's, uh, you know, just, uh, whatever. Yeah. This movie sucks. Oof. Okay, well, now let's talk about our director, who okay. also had a major hand in writing the sure. film. A lot of times he's credited as co-writer. He's not on this one. Okay. That is Robert Altman. Okay. Before this, he did years and years of one-off television episodes. Okay. And then he made Countdown, That Cold Day in the Park, and then kicks off his career of these kinds of movies with M.A.S.H. in 1970. Oh, okay. That's one I haven't seen. Then... Brewster McLeod, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, Images, The Long Goodbye, Thieves Like Us, and California Split. After this movie, he makes Three Women, A Wedding, Quintet, Popeye, Come Back to the Five and Dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean, Streamers, Fool for Love, Beyond Therapy, Tanner 88, Vincent and Theo, The Player, Shortcuts, Ready to Wear, Kansas City, The Gingerbread Man, Dr. T and the Women, Gosford Park, The Company, and A Prairie Home Companion. Okay, so he made Ready to Wear? Yes. And he made Gosford Park. Yes. Okay. Okay. So when we were just talking about you can have all these su- these different stories going on and do them well, my first thought was, yeah, you could do it like with Gosford Park. I had no idea he did that. Yes. Okay. You have never seen Gosford Park. No, I and haven't. you need to. It is one of my most favorite movies and it is a bizarre film yep. for me to love because I can't even pinpoint why I love it, but I do. Robert Altman, he has this method uh-huh. of making movies. It is a verite method. When when he is filming a scene, he is trying to get as close to a documentary sure. as he possibly sure. can while telling a fictional story. And that explains Ready to Wear so well, which I also, I remember watching it and thinking this movie's not very good, but I enjoyed it a lot because it was very, it's about fashion. Yeah. Um, the player is is his other magnum opus, which is all about Hollywood. And Tim Robbins plays an agent. Where all these, I mean, all of the stars, all I, the stars are in it. I know about that movie, but I haven't seen it. And, you know, Tanner 88 is a little miniseries he did way back in the day with Gary Trudeau of Doonesbury, where he has a fake political candidate running for president. Hmm, interesting. So, like, what he is doing is trying to make Slice of Life's movies in a documentary style. And, and here's the thing. He does it in all these different genres, though. That's f- I'm, Because, I'm, like, he does The Long Goodbye with Elliot Gould playing Philip Marlowe, the 30s detective, but it's in the 70s. That's fine. And it's fun and interesting. He just does whatever the fuck he wants to do. It doesn't work in this movie. It no. doesn't work in this movie. Well, because his through, his his outline sucks. It's too vague, and he doesn't he doesn't have a purpose. There's no purpose to yeah. this film. Like I've I've seen Mash, and Mash is now incredibly problematic. Not the television show, but the movie is really, the TV really show problematic. Has got some problematic stuff too. Amp it up to ten, okay. and this movie has it. However, it has a through line. You know what that through line is? Radar. Radar's talking over a loudspeaker the entire movie, and that is the through line. And it has this very similar "What is the story we don't really know?" vibe, but it still feels way more connected. Because it's one location, they're all on an army base, and this guy doing weird announcements over the speaker yeah. is the through line of this weird, wacky movie. And you know, Gosford Park, it takes place in one house the whole time. And there's a murder, and so we have to solve the murder. This movie is too epic in scope for him to use this kind of filmmaking. It, it just is. Well, and there's... There's too much... Well, you know what it could have been. It should have been. It should have been all these people 
at the political rally at the festival performing and all the mayhem for some of them to get there and then performing and putting on a political rally so that it's not actually one location, but it all ties to this one location. And, and he was clearly moving towards that, but but he never gets there. No. Not with this movie. I get the desire to be like, well, I don't want to film the entire movie at this one location because then that gets boring and then I've done that before and blah, blah, blah. Like I get- like, Well, we, we centered this movie around this setting, so we want to explore all of Nashville. No, no. So I get that. Yeah. But you you still need like 60% of the action needs to take place in that place. And then you can have, okay, I'm going to have this character. It's going to start off at the recording studio. Mm -hmm. And then we're going to see how they get to the thing. That's going to be part of their story. Because that and setup was so good. That's, that's That was a great way to start off. The, like, I have no problem with how that started. But then that's the only person we see in a recording studio. And then we can see another person who's performing at a bar. And they meet up with somebody else. And they're like, hey, we need another act. You go, go, you get to go. Or this is, this is the practice place before the play. Like whatever. So this doesn't spoil anything about the player, but it's the most lauded shot from that movie. And one of the most lauded shots ever is that he does this like 10 to 15 minute tracking shot uh -huh. where it starts in this agent's office and it goes all around the studio and through okay. these different places. And you're meeting all these characters in this one shot. And you're going to those different locations. And if he'd have done that for this movie and set it up to move it, it would work. But instead, it becomes this epic, which is not what this movie should be. The epic is the Parthenon, this gorgeous, giant building mm -hmm. <laughs> that they have made this huge focal point. And if you'd made that the focal point, it would work so much better. Yeah. And then you've got one person who makes this big deal about getting there, and then they get there, and then they don't perform. Like, or whatever. Sue Lin. Sue yeah. Lin is there and never gets to get on stage. Yeah. It's just, yeah. Mm -hmm. There's so many different things they could have do uh, being in and around the place. Yeah. That would have been better for him. That would have focused the story better. You still have all these people and you could have still had some crazy guys and some weirdness and you still could have done your thing. But it's a mess. But it's a hot fucking mess. And yep. it's, it's bad. It's just bad. Yep. Allman stated this is the first film over which he had total control. Yeah, clearly that's a problem. <laughs> uh, I think he figured it out later. Gosford Park being a good example. So, you know. Oh, no, I want to go make you watch that movie. Because, <laughs> like, ugh. We, we, could, we could maybe do an Altman series. That'd be a good director series to look at. I don't want to do a series, but I want you to watch that movie. Uh. <laughs> As part of the improvisation, most of the time on set was actually spent in character. So they almost always stayed in character and they shot it almost entirely in sequence, mm -hmm. according to the events of the movie. He had been pitched on another script set in Nashville, but for whatever reason decided he didn't want to do that project, but he liked the setting. So Tewksbury, who had worked as a script supervisor for him, mm -hmm. he sent her to Nashville to go scout it out, look around, get to know people and make some notes. And she wrote a diary and that became the rough outline for the script that they wrote. Okay. So then they fleshed out all the dialogue and stuff. And Geraldine Chaplin's BBC interviewer character is basically a fill-in for Tewksbury. Okay. Like she's wide-eyed, not from not knowing anything about country music and coming in here trying to find out more information. Okay. Which again, another potential through line that gets fucked up along the way. Because that could have easily been... If you wanted to keep this all loosey-goosey, make her the through line. She's 
so boring. <laughs> well, she's also so fucking racist and ignorant about everything. <laughs> and then every time she walks in the room, what happened? What's going on? Who are you? Like, she, <laughs> she knows nothing. So, yeah, so she's useless. Yeah. She's obnoxious. Like, yes. she's honestly, like, she's almost the audience. I mean, like, what's going on? Because this movie's taking too long. <laughs> Originally, Altman had the idea of not revealing the assassin of Barbara Jean at the end of the film, which Tewksbury thought was a much stronger choice. I would agree. The fact that we find out that it's weird violin dude is just like, what? <laughs> but if she just suddenly gets shot and it's pandemonium, okay, that's a little different. Yeah. And especially if you set up this character is tragic, bad things keep happening. Wherever she goes, something happens. Like, she's breaking down. Now she's finally about to be triumphant again and she gets shot. Yeah. If the whole movie, if her whole story for the whole movie is them convincing her, you got to do it. You have to go back one more. We need you. Your country needs you. Blah, 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 blah. Which is, which is another reason why this being a bicentennial thing should have been, would have been a better because it gives the weight of the performance. A bigger deal? Yeah, but... I know. <laughs> the only Well, the problem was it was 75. And I know the bicentennial had been, like, built up, but that it wasn't coming out that year. <laughs> I, I know. But they could... You could be previewing for it. That's fine. Yeah. Whatever. And it and it was building up. People were going crazy. That's true. And it's a presidential race, so... Yeah. Yeah, sure. It could have been like, hey, we're built... Like, this is... We're getting ready. You know, like... Hal Walker's going to change America in this in the 200th year. In our, in our, into our future. Yeah. It's going to lead the way for our next centennial. Whatever. Like, make it all about the future of the bicentennial. Whatever. And just, like, building up her character, finally getting her to feel comfortable again. And then and she then. gets shot. Sure. Then it has a tragic feel and fallout. Yeah. Because her character should be tragic. Uh, well, her being tragic in that way would be fine. Okay, but then our, the, the two most interesting women are so tragic. Yeah. Which, is, well, um, you know, 75, yeah. Of course it's very are. common for Altman, too. Altman writes tragic women. And many times they are compelling, but they are tragic. Well, let's get into our cast. Now, this is such a giant cast yep. that I am not bothering to give you full credits for this. Because in many cases, they might be big names, but they only have limited amounts of screen time. They're in the, they're in the movie for like... 10 minutes. 10 minutes of that? Yeah. They each get a moment to possibly shine. Pretty much everyone's getting the Arpon treatment. Yeah. Everybody's getting the Arpon treatment with some trivia peppered in. Sure. We start off with David Arkin, not related to Alan Arkin in any way. Okay. He plays Norman, the chauffeur. Okay. And fourth bandmate. <laughs> He's got a weird relationship with Tom, Mike, and Mary. <laughs> he was a regular in Robert Altman's films and also was in All the President's Men. Barbara Baxley playing Lady Pearl. Fucking hilarious. Yeah. Drunk and talking about the Kennedys. The only thing I waited for, and they never did it, and I really wish she had, was intimated that she had had sex with the Kennedys. That because the funny. way she talked about them. That was so funny. <laughs> uh, she did lots of television. She was also in Norma Ray and Sea of Love. Oh, okay. We have Ned Beatty as Delbert Reese. We've seen him. He was the head of the network in Network. Mm -hmm. He is the voice of Lotso Huggin' Bear in Toy Story 3. Deliverance, maybe one of his biggest roles. Okay. Karen Black as Connie White. She was a pretty well-regarded star by this point in the 70s and had her run mostly through the 70s. Uh -huh. She was an easy writer, five easy pieces, The Great Gatsby, and we will be seeing her again in The Day of the Locust. Okay. Which was a contender this year. She only filmed in Nashville for one week. Oh. 
which makes sense for her character, Connie. Sure. And her character is mostly based on Lynn Anderson, Tammy Wynette, and Dolly Parton. Okay. Makes sense. She's the blonde bombshell country starlet. Sure. She'll she'll let the boys in a little bit, but then she's like, "Mm, I don't trust you. (laughs) We have Ronnie Blakely playing Barbara Jean. She started as a country and folk singer. She was actually a replacement. Robert Allman wanted Susan Onspock of Five Easy Pieces and played against Sam, but she actually turned down the role over money. And so they were in Nashville. They were ready to start shooting and they did not have Barbara Jean cast. And she was a backup singer and had contributed some songs. And he thought the look was enough that he went ahead and cast her in this role. She also appears as Marge Thompson in Nightmare on Elm Street. And her character is based on Loretta Lynn. Yeah, that makes sense. Especially with the abusive manager husband. Sure. Yep. We have Timothy Brown playing Tommy Brown. He was in MASH from 1970. And he was based on the Texas legend and sadly recently passing away, Charlie Pride. Hmm. Keith Carradine playing Tom Frank. Yeah. He is Wild Bill in Deadwood, Frank Lundy on Dexter. He is the youngest Carradine brother, if I recall. Hmm. And his character is supposed to be based on Chris Christopherson, a lot of people think. Okay. Though that trio is definitely based on Peter, Paul, and Mary. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's the whole idea behind that. Oh, yeah. Who could have been better for this? Gary Busey. Oh. This is early Gary Busey. Yeah, no. Very different. Yeah. Um, but he actually wrote the song Since You've Gone that I believe the trio plays in the film. Oh, okay. So he had already done some work Oh. thinking yeah, he was going to be in the movie, and then they they switched later, so Keith takes the role. And Keith's pretty good. He's not I, terrible. I like Keith Carradine. Geraldine Chaplin playing Opal. She is the daughter of Charlie Chaplin. She's our BBC presenter. <laughs> oh, okay. Robert Dequee playing Wade, the black guy who's ready to fight Tommy Brown and tries to help Suleen as okay. much as he can. He was Sergeant Reed in the original Robocop movies. Oh, okay. Shelley Duvall as L.A. Joan. Jeez. Steals every goddamn scene in this movie. See, okay, that and that was another character we are told so little about her actually, <laughs> but we know so much because every time she shows up, she's wearing a different wig and she's just absurd and it's great. You know what's great about this movie? And Shelley Duvall was a regular in a lot of Altman's movies around this time. She's fabulous. This is her at the height of her powers and Altman really knew. She definitely got his style of mm-hmm. filmmaking, which is why he kept coming back to her. Because she gets just like, I'm going to, it's like, okay, now we're going to put you in this wig. What's your personality going to be? And she'll change it on a dime. (laughs) She's so enigmatic and yet chewing so much scenery. She steals every scene she's in. Yeah. It's really fucking great. She's she's amazing. I adore Uh, her. uh, It's one of the best bits in the movie. Alan Garfield playing Barnett, the husband manager of Barbara Jean. Alan Garfield was in The Conversation and Beverly Hills Cop 2. He's a big character actor guy. Okay. Henry Gibson playing Haven Hamilton. This guy is a comedy legend from Laughing. Is the head Chicago Nazi in The Blues Brothers mm-hmm. and also appears in Magnolia in one of the significant oh, character roles. Okay. His character is based on Red Foley, Roy Acuff, Hank Snow, and Porter Wagoner. And who could have been better for this role? Robert Duvall. Robert Duvall got the initial pitch for this role of Haven, but he had a scheduling issue. So they got Henry Gibson instead, 
Altman acknowledged that if Duvall had been cast, this movie would have been very different. Uh, that's very true. <laughs> and that he was very happy with what Henry did in this movie. Because Henry is the comedic glue for the movie. <laughs> He's doing all the heavy lifting on the comedy. Scott Glenn playing Private First Class Glenn Kelly. We've seen him on this show in Apocalypse Now and The Right Stuff. It's yeah. Alan Shepard. And recently, he was stick on Daredevil for television. Jeff Goldblum as the Tricycle Man. The <laughs> Tricycle Man. This is one of his earliest film roles. He actually appeared the year before in Robert Altman's California Split as well. Okay. Barbara Harris playing Albuquerque. Mm -hmm. Barbara Harris is one of the earliest improv actors from the late 50s and early 60s. She was an original member of the Second City and worked with Nicholson May. Oh, wow. All through that time. She actually got her first Tony nomination for performing and singing from a Second City review. Wow. She did win a Tony Award later for the Apple Tree. Kristen Chenoweth uh, did the revival. Mm. And she was the mom in the 1976 Freaky Friday with Jodie Foster. Yeah, when I when I looked her up, because when you hear her singing, I was like, this woman knows how to sing. Yes. You can tell by the way she sings. She has clear training of course and it should, that's a broadway voice yep there are some people when they open their mouth yep that's a broadway voice thing was film audiences didn't know her very well she had of just course. recently made a shift to doing movies and all film audiences knew her was as an actress sure she'd never sung on film well when i looked her up i was like wait she's i said freaky friday i was like who's she in freaky friday she's the mom that came out the <laughs> next year are you fucking kidding me that's amazing. Altman specifically wanted the shock of her singing at the end to subvert their expectation of her. But they ruined it actor. because they pan away from her the second she picks up that microphone. I know. So you don't even know if it's really her. It's a bad choice. And so bad then choice. and then it's basically, basically she's just singing over credits, essentially. She should have she should have performed for a little while before we do the wide shot out. Yeah. So then we can have this epic sweeping. Well, this is life and this is Nashville. No, no, no. What it should have been is it should have been, we should have just seen this epic, we should have seen the pan out of the mayhem. And then we see her run out to take advantage of the situation because they're saying, someone go sing. So we need someone to perform. Come on, come on. And nobody's doing it. Nobody's doing anything. Because all their dreams have been shattered. Because they're all freaking out. And then we see, when we see her finally run out and grab the mic. Then we do the zoom in on her and she starts singing. And we're like, damn, this bitch can sing. And then once we let her sing a little bit and we know she's singing, she's awesome. Then we can start to do the the getting away from it. Whatever. Yeah, I know. I know. You, you, ruined, you ruined this moment you were trying to build up for. A lot gets lost in the edit of this movie. A lot. Uh, there's does. no editing in this film. Yeah. Well, no, that nope, nope. There's no fucking editing in this film. <laughs> it's bullshit. Barbara Harris was actually so upset about her performance during the traffic jam and her improv there that when she saw that footage, she immediately ran home from the projection room, called Robert Altman, and said she wanted to meet with him. She offered to put up her own money to reshoot the scene, <laughs> and Altman just looked at her and was like, "No." That's <laughs> funny. No. You did fine. <laughs> I, I appreciate that she was willing to pay for it. Yeah. Like, I, I, I respect that. But there's there's a part where it's like, Robert Altman is the kind of guy who's like, whatever you gave me, I'll make work. Like, 
<laughs> we don't need to do this again. I feel so I feel so lazy. Well, also, that setup, yeah. that giant car crash setup, nah, we're not doing that shit again. I get it. Who could have been better? Bette Midler and Bernadette Peters were good, offered this role. Good choices. Mm-hmm. Good choices. But if you if you wanted that reveal, you couldn't have done that with either of them. I don't know. I don't know in 1970s. Bernadette, you nope. probably couldn't. Nope. I don't know about Beth, though. Nope. Couldn't have. We have Michael Murphy playing John Triplett. He has worked with Altman starting from Altman's first major movie and has been in almost all of his stuff. And he got this starring role as Jack Tanner in Altman's Maki series, Tanner 88. Hmm. Alan F. Nichols playing Bill. He's part of the trio, the long-haired guy. He appeared in Slapshot and had a pretty decent career as a second unit and assistant director. Hmm. Dave Peel, who plays Bud Hamilton, Haven's son. This guy isn't an actor. He was Henry Gibson's guitar instructor. Okay. And Altman was still looking for who was going to play Bud Hamilton. And Henry Gibson was like, he looks enough like me. I bet we could pull it off. (laughs) And Bud is genial enough. For a non-actor, he's pretty good. (laughs) He's pretty good in the movie. So when Altman met him, he cast him. He was like, yeah, you got the look. We can do this. Lily Tomlin playing Linnea Reese. Mm -hmm. This is her first on-screen film role. I don't know how that's possible. Her only other credits were voices. Mm -hmm. And then she was on like the electric company. Okay. She done TV. Sure. Lots of television. Mm -hmm. And she done, she did laughing. She had characters. She done Broadway. This is her first actual on-screen film role. Wow. That's crazy. (laughs) She's fabulous. And she, she's fucking great. And Lily Tomlin. She's Lily Tomlin. I love her. I've talked about her a lot. I continue to love her. And one of the few people who you can tell are doing magic with the improv sequences. All that stuff when she's talking to the people at Haven's house. Yeah. And at first you're just like, okay, this is just a boring story. And then it gets a little weirder. And then it gets a little weirder. And you know she's just figuring out the exact beat where she wants to ratchet up the weird. Yeah. She's fast. She's She's so good through the whole movie. She is. One of those improvers who's also really comfortable with awkwardness. She is very comfortable with the with the silence. She's comfortable with si- and she's comfortable improving dramatic scenes. Sure, and I mean, I just, I mean, the whole scene at Tom's hotel room is so good. Oh, it's fabulous! I mean, just the scene of her reacting to Tom singing. Is- <sighs> That's the scene that does it. Heavenly. <laughs> I mean, that's the scene that does it. Yeah. But um, she's a phenomenal actress. But she's just very comfortable. At least that's the impression that you get from her performances. Is that you can see that she's she's fine with like well, let's make it awkward, let's make it weird, yep. well, let's just let's just. Fit. I mean, I I talk about it all the time, but her and Grace and Frankie is just gold. And then like the most recent season, we have Michael McKean. <laughs> and you just see these two people in scenes together, just like this is just I just want to watch them. You two are geniuses. You two are just the most precious thing that ever existed in the world. The two of you together is just oh it's magic. Like it's it's just pure magic to me. Mm-hmm. I just love it. Who could have been better? Louise Fletcher. I don't know who that is. So Louise Fletcher was actually who Altman had in mind for this movie. She'd appeared in his film Thieves Like Us, and she was the daughter of deaf parents in New Sign Language. Okay. So he based this character off of her okay. in a lot of ways. Okay. Now, incidentally, Tomlin thought it worked out okay because she 
had been offered the role of Nurse Ratched in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and Louise Fletcher got that role instead because Lily Tomlin turned it down. <laughs> so she thinks it was a fair trade. Oh, they basically swapped roles. Uh-huh. Oh, okay. That's funny. Okay. We will be talking more about Louise Fletcher later this series. Okay, that is funny. <laughs> that is, that's pretty funny. Pretty little serendipitous. That worked out okay. We have Keenan Wynn playing the very set-upon Mr. Green, the uncle of L.A. Joan. He's a longtime character actor who was Colonel Bat Guano in Doctor Strangelove. <laughs> that really is your name. Richard Baskin plays Frog. Now we're on to actual Arbons. Oh, Jesus. Um, he wrote most of Henry Gibson's songs for the film and was the music supervisor. Okay. So all those fucking hilarious songs, we can thank this guy. And okay. he's also the beset upon session musician through the whole movie. Oh, okay. Elliot Gould playing Elliot Gould. Cool. Julie Christie playing Julie Christie. Nice. <laughs> Just... Why not? Come on in. Have some fun. Sure. He'd worked with both of them before Altman had. Sure. Steve Earle, as a concert goer, this is a legendary Roots Country performer guy. He was also Bubbles' sponsor for AA and The Wire. Howard K. Smith, as news announcer Howard K. Smith, we talked about him for Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Okay. He appears as himself many, many times. And Joan Tewksbury, our writer for this film, is the voice on the phone of Tom's lover and Kenny's mother. Oh, okay. So she does a little voice performance for this movie. Interesting. That is the cast of this film. It's so gigantic. There's there's too many. A lot going on. Too much going on, in fact. Too, too much. much. Trivia. Trivia. Each actor and actress had to write and perform their own songs for the film, as we talked about. Okay. So if they're performing it, they at least had some hand in writing the song. Gibson probably gets the most lift on his songs, and I get that because it's got to sound like a polished, old-time Nashville star. Okay. But they each definitely had a hand in writing what they performed. Okay. So that is that is impressive. That's very cool. Yeah. Some of these people, like Ronnie Blakely, are songwriters, but yeah. some of them are not. During the car crash scene, other drivers on the other side of the road stopped their cars and rushed to render aid in the time. And I think he keeps some of that footage. Wow. (laughs) When Haven states he wants Pig to play piano instead of Frog, they're actually referencing one of the most in-demand session piano players in Nashville at the time, a Mm -hmm. blind pianist named Hargis Pig Robbins. Oh, okay. Haven's house in the film was the location where Robert Altman and his family were staying during filming of the movie. The man always takes an opportunity to use a free location. (laughs) It's what he does. Polly Platt, the original production designer for this film, quit after objecting to having an assassination at the end of the film. And in fact, Altman got flack in 1980 because of the Lennon assassination. Oh, okay. A lot of people grilled him on that saying, do you think you caused this? Which Altman completely shut them the fuck down over that. He's not responsible for that. No. Um, and, and he had a thoughtful answer, but like, it's like, that's bullshit. Fuck you. This is the first film to commercially feature Dolby Stereo Sound. Uh, we see that little eight-track recording thing. They showed it with a six-track magnetic stereo sound in its L.A. theater location mm-hmm. that created actual ricochet effects during the concert at the Parthenon. Like, the way they set up the sound made it feel like you were at a concert. And I wonder if seeing this on a big screen in a movie theater had an effect on the viewing experience. Hmm. No. (laughs) (laughs) 
However, a guy, a, a little known guy named George Lucas was so impressed by the sound for the film Ugh. that he decided to make Star Wars A New Hope in Dolby. And during the filming of the assassination sequence, Robert Altman was facing down a rainstorm that would threaten to ruin the filming. They had no money left in the budget, so they were going to have to do it no matter what. Okay. So reportedly, Robert Altman started screaming at the sky, ordering the rain to stop, and the rain stopped, <laughs> and they completed filming. That's awesome. That's the kind of guy he is. I mean, <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I probably would have done the same thing, but like, he's not like a god or something. No. I just that's just funny. That's a very Robert Altman story. You will not rain. I have no money left. <laughs> you will stop raining now. Now. Finally, our nominations for this movie. As with all of our Oscar series, we will not give away who won any of these categories, but we will say what it got nominated for. It was nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Supporting Actress for both Ronnie Blakely and Lily Tomlin. Okay. And best original song for I'm Easy by Keith Carradine. Yep, that makes sense. It's, okay, so I will say this. I told David after, I was like, well, of course this is the movie that got best song. And he's like, okay, but can you tell me which one? Yeah. And I instantly said, oh, it's the one that he sings when Lily Tomlin gets all gooey. And you're like, yeah. And I was like, yeah, I knew it. And that leads us to ratings. Ratings. Mm. Mm-mm-mm. How many tricycles? Yeah. How many How many tricycle? How many tricycles? <sighs> this was a movie I brought to the table. Again, I've thought about it. I'm blaming you for this. That's fair. I'm going to give it two. Two stars. Giving it one and a half. Like, I agree it's bad. It's bad. But it is not Barry Lyndon bad to me because... I don't even remember what I gave Barry Lyndon. Uh, you gave it a one. I gave it a one and a half. Okay. It's a garbage pile. So this is this is only slightly better because the music's really good. The music's really good. The music's really entertaining. The characters are really good. There are some stellar performances of those characters and a lot of mediocre performances. There is something in this movie. Nah. But it's it's, it's, it's not, all what it could have been. It, it's not a film that I can look at and say, I can see the movie in here. I just need to edit it out of it. No, it's not there. There's see, not a good movie there. See, to me, I think there is. There's a good movie idea here. There was not a good movie made. Yeah. That's the problem. I think that's that's mostly where we disagree here. Yeah. Neither of us thinks this is a good movie. But I really, <laughs> seeing it and thinking about it, I really do think there is something to it. Yeah. That if you really took some time with it, can make it really work and really shine. Nope. 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 And I feel that way because, you know, they kind of did it later with a bunch of other directors. But anyway, enough about this boring ass what? old movie. Let's what? go fucking adventuring. What are you going to make me watch next time? Like, come on. Well, how about a bone. How about Sean Connery? Okay. And Michael Caine. I like those dudes. In a fucking adventure movie. I like adventure. We are going to the Middle East for a colonial film. <laughs> But some swashbuckling as well. Pirates? Like pirates? Uh, no, like soldiers. But oh. piratey soldiers, maybe. Oh. It's a John Huston movie. Christopher Plummer's here. I... I don't know. This... I'll, I'll tell you this. I don't think this movie's gonna be boring. Oh. I do think this movie might be a little problematic. You think? 
But I, I got a feeling we we might at least have a fun time. A bunch of white dudes are going to the Middle East, David, and you think it might be problematic. Yeah, but John Huston likes to take those themes and flip them on their head a lot. Well, Christopher Plummer, the last film we watched him in, he ripped up the Nazi flag. So that was good. I don't know. Let's see how this goes. Well, okay. That bodes well. Until next time. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Facebook.